Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored the podcast that takes a forensic approach to literary filth. I'm Aoife Vrtnach. This episode features a work you probably haven't heard of before, but it was very widely read in the 1930s. It's sold enough to be called a bestseller. By a mysterious author, the book is W.A.A.C. or WAC, The Woman's Story of the War, and it was published in March 1930. By October 1930, it had been banned in Ireland. Now, before we go any further, we need to define what a WAC is. That abbreviation stands for Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, a part of the British Army founded in 1917 to recruit women. Previously, the only job women were officially allowed to do was nursing. But the WAC were allowed to do more non-fighting jobs so men could be sent to the front line. As a result, they did admin, catering, driving, clearing up after bombing. A lot of miscellaneous work, really. Queen Mary became their patron in 1918, after which the unit was known as Queen Mary's Army Auxiliary Corps. But their first name must have stuck in the public mind if books are written in 1929 with whack in the title. This book was in fact so popular it spawned a whole series. Part 2 was called Whack Demobilised, also banned in Ireland on the same day as Part 1. Part 3 was titled My Journey's End, uh, but was not banned. Probably because importers knew the first two titles in the series were banned and didn't even bother ordering it. I chose this work for my memoir series in the hopes that I would get to read a woman's autobiography that wasn't the reminiscences of a rich titled lady. But I'm not sure that I got what I was hoping for with this memoir, supposedly by a former whack. To trash out the pros and cons of this book, I enlisted the help of Dr Andrew Frayne of Edinburgh Napier University. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Aoife. I'm very much looking forward to getting into this whack, the woman's story of the war. Um, And first of all, I suppose we'll choose a drink to go with the book. I would have to go for tea in this instance. There is quite a lot of tea in the book, although perhaps not as appreciated by the author as you would expect, given the supposed hardship she's enduring. 
And there was one very memorable one where she's waiting for someone to tell her where to go next and has a conversation with a senior officer, a major. And this particular one I found memorable because of what he said to her about her tea. And I'd read it out. You were smoking a cigarette when I saw you just now, he said carelessly, and there was a twinkle in his blue eyes as he held his case out to me. Do you usually sit down and cross your thighs and smoke cigarettes when reporting for duty? I felt I was turning red and looked down at the floor, unable to answer. I thought that was pretty awful. The mention of thighs was very lascivious and the misogyny of it and the, you know, the power balance that Wax must also often have experienced from the senior officers who are all men. And I just thought that was really gross, but very memorable for its tea. But what about you? Are you plumping for tea? Yeah, I mean, you're right. For a novel that's sort of meant to be from a women's point of view and really is about their experiences, it's often very uncharitable about them as well. And I think we'll, we'll come on to that more. I'm not a massive tea drinker, so I was more interested in the alternatives that were offered when they come back uh, at dawn from a particular uh, from a particular mission by the MO when they can't get hold of any tea. Uh, plenty of whiskey, brandy and champagne they're offered in that 5am situation. Uh, and they go on later to identify having uh, Moete Shondon. The mood in the novel, I think, is carpe diem, living for the day. And it's about reveling one can in the face of hardship. And I did think uh, sometimes reading this novel was something of a hardship. I think you had some similar feelings about it too. So a glass of good champagne would be a lovely counterpoint to the sour taste of disillusionment that this book sometimes leaves in the mouth. Effervescent, refreshing, intoxicating. I absolutely would drink a glass of champagne at 5am if I was on the front. Um, yeah, much better than tea. I can't imagine the average Tommy was offered Moe and Shandon on the front. No, I can't imagine it happened very often. But of course, there are, you know, the kind of the Russians. And I suppose it's also, you know, kind of using whatever is around. So, you know, you never know what you might be offered in those situations where everything is precarious and everything is hand to mouth. So maybe you might have got lucky once or twice. And they are in France, home of luxury and decadence. Absolutely. Even during the war. So to move on then to what I think that the censors may have actually disliked, my first thought was that it was because it was uh, written by someone who refused to put their name to it, that it was by an anonymous author. That's pretty suspicious in the overall context of publications that are accused of being lewd. Most of the famous pornographic texts from the 19th century and earlier are all uh, by anonymous, which is like the author is desperate to tell you the truth, but can't put their real name to it. So you have the memoirs of Fanny Hill, the memoirs of Dolly Morton, and they're all by anonymous, so-called. And this mix of memoir and anonymity, I think that might have triggered them. But also that subtitle then, it sort of echoed the pornographic text when it calls it the intimate story of a young girl. In it, she realistically describes her adventures and love affairs. So I think if you put the words intimate, realistic, love affairs, and then by an anonymous author, I think that is a lot of red flags, if the censors were aware, of course. They're only five months into banning at this point, so maybe they're still new. 
I think those are things that people would have picked up on. The anonymity would have been a part of it, of it, the claim to truth, the situating of it as memoir. And I think sort of the intimate story of a young girl that really sort of suggests her sexual experience stuff, which I think, you know, kind of is even more of a red flag, probably, if you're looking for those kinds of things. And I think it is, it's sort of sexuality that the novel would have been uh, sort of most in danger from uh, by the censors. I think the main thing they'd reacted against is the reminder of wartime license. Wartime, of course, a moment when rules are often tightened, but at least in some circles, in some cases, there's also a greater acceptance of transgressions as well because of the nature of the situation. I think the book's allure for its contemporary audiences would have been that billing as intimate. It's clear also that the author doesn't view all infidelities and unmarried sex as equal. Hers, of course, is special because they're in love, capital I, capital L, I think, but illicit and fleeting kissing are a constant presence in the book as well. When it gets to the lovemaking as such between Connie and Rupert, because that is what the guy that she's attracted to is called, uh, we're allowed as the readers to fill in the blanks. I'm just going to read you a little bit from the book. Nothing seemed to matter except that mad desire that exquisite yearning. He tried to calm me, tried to argue, reminded me of what might happen if... But I clung to him still. There was no holding back now. What might happen afterwards didn't matter. Only one thing mattered. I loved him. We loved each other. And after that, this line of asterisks across the page, the literal kind of drawing of a veil over what's happening, what's very obviously happening in this room. That's quite a common thing in lots of early 20th century books. I know you and I have read some of the same ones where we see this the build-up to this sex act, but not the presentation of it. We're invited to imagine it for ourselves. And of course, that, to some degree, is the dangerous thing, you know, where a sense is concerned. What, what happens in people's imagination is absolutely terrifying. Yes, people are walked up to the door of the bedroom and they are told it is a bedroom <laughs> and then left to imagine. And of course, that is quite dangerous and fascinating for censors who are like, well, technically, there's no sex in it. But somehow they've put sex in without actually describing it. And those ellipses are just, they're just great. Yeah. The pauses. Yeah, and that's what that's what those things are always do. It's always a something that can't be said, right? Also culpable, I think, is the pregnancy of one of the nurses whom Connie encounters by her actor brother. It transpires fortuitously in terms of the novel's plot. The brother survives and she sees him as a shirker for a variety of reasons, even though he nearly drowns in a uh, sea and an accident at sea towards the end of the novel. But the problem, I think, is that the pregnancy isn't condemned. It's treated with kindness, or at least understanding, by Cully, uh, and also by her really kind of saintly parson father. It's indicative, I think, those things of a double standard in the novel, and the author often wants to have it both ways, to be moralising, but also to sympathise with the situation, particularly the situations that in these very difficult circumstances that's, that women are swept up in, that are participants in. Yeah, it's really interesting that 
the opposition to the unmarried pregnancy is very clearly outlined. Various characters take very strong stances against it. There is a sense of the moral order around these actions. But the individual heroine herself, you know, stands back from that and is able to say, well, in this context, clearly it doesn't matter because, you know, the rules are different, not just because it's war, um, but because, you know, she gets the power to decide as well. That part about her father actually really struck me how this priest, he's a, an Anglican priest, is cast as the most ridiculously liberal uh, saintly, accommodating, charitable. I mean, it was almost like, I was like, are they trying to launder the reputation of the Anglican Church clergy? It was so obscenely unreal as a character, as a person, and not to mind as someone who might be working for a rather conservative institution. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I also wondered in terms of things that the censor objected to, whether one of those things might have been the uncharitable depictions of Ireland as well. I wonder what you thought about that. Yeah, I think the depiction of Ireland would certainly have offended them if they hadn't already had the extramarital affairs and the actual sex between unmarried people. But I think that certainly when Connie arrives in Ireland uh, to learn to drive, so she goes to the Curra, which is a very old camp, huge garrison for the British Army. So Ireland is implicated in the war in the sense of garrisoning and training, but the population are entirely unconcerned with the war as a heroic effort. And the English people who, who she castigates as well, the civilians who don't go to the front, uh, who aren't involved in the war, you know, she really sets up this opposition between people who are committed emotionally and physically to the war and then everyone else who couldn't be bothered or makes money out of it. And the Irish, of course, are totally unconcerned and a little bit hostile as well. So there is certainly, I think, the film censor was very concerned when Irish people were portrayed poorly, in his opinion, in American films. And I think it's almost certain that the censorship board would have had similar prejudices against depictions of Irish people that weren't overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then I suppose the question is, to return again to anonymity, realism, truth, whether this is a fiction or a non-fiction work. It masquerades, as we know, as a memoir. But when you start to read it about 10 pages in, you realise it couldn't possibly be true because the heroine is no sooner on the boat to France than she meets double agents, uh, is somehow mistaken for a spy, gets into a car with lots of people she's never met before without a quaff. So it, it, it feels like it's going to go down the road of a thriller or a spy novel at that point. So it was quite clear to me that it was definitely not a memoir. But do we know who wrote this? And do we know if it was received as authentic by readers at the time? Yeah, two good questions. And let's answer the easy one first about who wrote it. Very short answer is no. The slightly longer answer is, yeah, I've done quite a big check on this. I can't find any identification of it. I also asked the question on Twitter a couple of years ago. Caitlin Russ, current PhD student who also did an MA on WEX, hadn't been able to identify the author. So yeah, I think uh, we can say that we don't know. 
I have to say, I also had moments of wondering whether it even was a female author. Yeah, I had my doubts as well. It was very much like a romance novel, but I felt like perhaps not a romance novel written by a woman, but something masquerading as such. But then it's so difficult to know, really, because, of course, misogyny isn't unique to men and, you know, horrible moral judgment is not unique to men. But at the same time, there were just moments of it. It was kind of cruel and cold towards the women protagonists. And I think that that felt maybe like a deeper level of misogyny than the average woman author could manage. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I did also think, and this is pure speculation, that that would also account for why the authorship was such a closely guarded secret as well. But that is just speculation. To move on to the second question about its authenticity, so I had a look at some of the reviews in some of the newspapers and periodicals from the time. Uh, The Saturday Review, which was a London liberal conservative newspaper, small c conservative, offered a brief review, and I'll read all of that here. Any women who served as works in the war will resent bitterly, one imagines, this highly coloured picture of the life of one of them in France. It may be, as the narrator Connie suggests, founded on fact, but the life of this particular war worker would seem to have been made up largely of sexual affairs, kisses from nice boys, and an intrigue with an officer romantically named Rupert, who also took her spy hunt. The book is meant to be dairy and outspoken, but it fails to be shocking as often as it's silly. Silly. I mean, it is at moments very silly. The spy hunting is completely ludicrous, especially the facility with which they can speak every language they encounter. Not just standard French, no, but patois, you know, truly obscure dialect. Yeah, sure, we can speak. (laughs) My father just happened to be a linguistic expert who spoke seven languages, including French and German, and several very useful dialects of German for the purposes of me spying during the war. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I think that sort of that attitude, I think, was quite uh, sort of common to the metropolitan papers. So to look a little bit uh, further around the country, uh, it was reviewed alongside Helen Zena Smith's Not So Quiet, Stepdaughters of War. You can see that title's responding directly to All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, that review is in the Sheffield Independent, 2nd of April 1930, under the heading Women's Outspoken War Books. It's a pretty even-handed review. The review of the Montrose Review disagrees with the critic describing it as filth uh, and sees the novel as having a fine restraint, claiming that in no part of this book do we find any exaggeration. It sees it as a faithful record. That said, the same review does see it as ably and interestingly written, not claiming to be a literary achievement. And I think there are a couple of things there that you might read into that. One might be it's not trying to be literary in the sense of fictional. I can't decide whether it's that meaning or the rather kind of backhanded compliment about its quality that also might be implied by that phrasing too. In the Murder Express down in Wales, the reviewer defended it against claims of lewdness uh, and so it has not a novel at all, but the autobiography of a highly intelligent, exceptionally gifted, well-educated woman. The review aligns it with two other, as they see it, great war books. One, Letters of an Unknown Soldier, and there isn't a book called that, so I presume it means The Love of an Unknown Soldier, 
which is sort of a collection of letters, supposed letters published anonymously in 1918, quite similarly to this work in some ways by the popular author Collingsby Dawson, and also Arnold's colleagues, The Case of Sergeant Grisha. They describe all of these as works of extraordinary merit, outshining all others as real literature and veritable human documents. Now, I think it's safe to say that's quite an idiosyncratic selection. It feels a bit much to me. I really don't think it's that good a book. But it's a reminder that contemporary successes often aren't enduring successes. They're popular because they speak to the cultural debates of the moment in which they're intervening. They're not philosophising, they're not offering the kinds of longer-term views that tend to appeal to people like me when we're writing and teaching, and publishers when they're reprinting things too. So yeah, what we're seeing here is that it was generally reviewed as realistic. Those marketing ploys you identified that highlight its salaciousness must absolutely have been a factor in its success. I think people always want to believe as well. When it's a good story, people always want to believe it's true and are maybe willing to take at face value things that claim to be autobiographical. Yes, it's interesting that so many people did feel it was lewd or filthy. So it isn't that the Irish censors are identifying something completely ridiculous that they've pulled out of the top of their head. I mean, this has clearly been received as potentially salacious. And there, there is that debate within the reviewing columns about whether it is, you know, really. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Realistic in a good way or kind of exploitative, salacious, realistic. I actually came across a review uh, from Australia in which the uh, reviewer was uh, supposed to be an old soldier. It was a column in which he was supposed to be an old soldier. And he said he had to wait some weeks to get the book from the library because so many people were reading it and then proceeded to review it very much as if it was an actual memoir and saying from his point of view, didn't sound to him like the war he had experienced as an Australian soldier. And was, of course, then wildly offended at how rude she was about the Australians. 
far from the only nationality who come under fire, uh, pun intended, I suppose, in the novel. Yes, well, it's only the the great, amazing officers like Rupert who are really worth anything. <laughs> yeah. And in the introductory note, actually, the author explicitly refers to this text as sort of one that is in dialogue with other texts about the war and that it, this text is making certain decisions and is not going to talk so much about mud and corpse-filled trenches because that's already been done before. And this is a different perspective, a woman's perspective, but also, you know, slightly different war experience. And the Irish Blacklist in 1930 and 1931 includes quite a lot of books about the war when I was going through it. That Helen Zena Smith one you mentioned was banned. WAC Part 2 was banned. And so it's clear that this is part of a wider trend in censorship that probably reflects publishing. You've done quite a lot of work on that, haven't you, about the war books boom. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So for a long time, people thought there wasn't much literature about the First World War after it finished until the huge successes of 1928-1929, the ones you've probably all heard of, like All Quiet on the Western Front, which we've mentioned already, Journey's End, both of which are huge international successes in a variety of forms adapted, translated to capitalise on their successes. There definitely was literature about the First World War throughout the 1920s, but it's often forgotten because it doesn't fit with how we now understand the war. That said, there also definitely was still a boom in First World War literature from around 1928 to 30. Yeah, I've done some work on this over the last few years, and you can see it in an article I co-wrote with Fiona Houston. That's open access, so it's free to access, even though it's in an academic journal. Very basically, the war books boom. There's a spike in the publication of books about the war, published at the 10-year anniversary of the armistice in 1928. There's a dip in publications in 1929, I wonder if one of the reasons for that is because All Quiet and Journey's End are such huge successes that they're actually the things that people are buying. There's then a big publication spike in 1930 as writers have started to have time to respond to those bestsellers and publishers are starting to pick those uh, books up. So writers are writing back to the First World War. They're also addressing fears, increasing fears of another conflict. And thus with any boom, the bust comes quite quickly. And actually from mid-1930, the interest seems to decline quite dramatically. So it's a boom by number of publications, many of them sold in huge numbers too. It was also recognised as a boom at the time and written about widely, and this is where we start to get back to this book. Lots of the journalism centred on reactions against and in defence of the outspokenness, forthrightness, vividness, disillusionment of many of the key texts. There seems even to have been a concerted campaign waged against these kinds of outspoken, disenchanted, forthright books by the British Legion, backed up for the most part by the British churches as well. So the debate that's flagged in the introduction to the book is really an ongoing debate at the time in the press, very much so at the time that it's published in March 1930. So yeah, to bring it back to work. This is a hugely popular book. It capitalises on the ongoing vogue for these kinds of books. It also intervenes in the debates too. 
makes a response to these successes. It gets a sequel, which comes out less than four months later. 21st of July, 1930, WAC demobilised her private affairs, which details the post-war travels that she sort of glosses over in the final few pages of this book. And that second book is in a second edition by August. My copy is from the 92nd thousand, part of the eighth impression in September 1938. So it's interesting that it's still selling throughout the decade. And that's a really substantial number whenever you're selling books. It's a genuine bestseller. All of this tells you how commercial the book is. It's undoubtedly written to capitalise on the name. It does so. The writer goes on to capitalise further and there's not one, but four further volumes with the publisher T. Werner Laurie that are published by 1938. And they are really conscious of the debates in which they're intervening. There's that introductory note that the claims repeated in the book as well. I'll just read a little bit from it. It's not my intention to disgust readers by piling on the agony, labouring the horrors of battle and of what one saw in hospitals. That's been done by other writers. Overdone, in my opinion. I've read war books whose authors appear to think their readers must be devoid of an imagination, if not half imbecile. Or is it that they delight in wallowing in anatomical and gruesome portrayals of war victims in hospitals and in the trenches and gloat over the bloodshed? I wonder if they saw what they describe or draw on their imagination. There's a really assertive claim made here in situating the book as a corrective to some of the greater horrors of war which they see as being told by other authors. All quiet on the Western Front, definitely. I think also things like Richard Aldington's Death of a Hero, which was a controversy at the tail end of 1929 too. All of these novels which are kind of criticised for their very unheroic representation of soldiers in the war. This doesn't shy away from the bloodshed. We get some really quite graphic descriptions of injuries and uh, breakdowns and those sorts of things. But it is also keen to sort of assert that people are generally good, that there is still heroism to be had particularly among certain type plucky, plucky British brackets English man and maybe woman. Yes, only because she is, you know, gone out with them, I suspect. It's kind of more she gets the uh, English pluck and heroism by association, which is why I think it might be written by a man. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so interesting. Like a lot of the books that you mentioned there and the authors, they appear on the blacklist. Um, Richard Aldington, Ray Marker, they're all there. So the Irish censor is banning the genuine war bestsellers alongside WAC, which is another one of them. So there is this torrent of books and certainly a lot of the big ones are being banned in Ireland in 1930. It's really interesting that you say that this has only just started this censorship at this period. And I wonder how much it actually ties directly into some of these concerns about, you know, outspokenness, about, you know, kind of the lewdness, the kind of visceral descriptions that are in some of these books, because it is a really live debate in the newspapers at the time. So I wonder if there's a direct connection. Yeah, I think the Irish situation and censorship is complicated by the fact that the country has been under a military censorship for a lot longer than the rest of Britain, because the Dora War censorship ends. And then in 1919, 1920, new censorship comes in to cope with the civil conflict and the insurrection. 
And then when that ends, there's the other civil war. And that's also got censorship. So I think that really the Irish are very used to censorship for a long period of time. And I suppose when it lifts, it might have been quite shocking, you know, having had nearly 10 years and then to go back to normal, so to speak. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, Shall we do the censorship bingo? The best bit. I'm expecting an extremely low, low score. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, right. Did anyone even swear? I don't think anyone swore once. I don't think anyone swore, not in the sense that would put it in trouble with the censors. The closest that I thought was somebody used the phrase bitched. Oh, right. But that was one instance. And I imagine, to be honest, they'd stop reading by the time it uh, sent that 200 pages or so into the novel. Yeah. Right. Let's start then, as usual, with breasts. I think so. Uh, okay, no to that. Um, definitely no bestiality. There isn't, although they do use the word on a couple of occasions. So it's used sort of figuratively to describe, you know, the nature of the conditions. But no, no animals were harmed in the writing of this book. Yes. Uh, sex work, there definitely was sex work. There is. And VD and concerns around espionage and sex work. Yes. So that was definitely a feature. And racism. But there was lots of prejudice. Again, latent only, I think. There's one comment about money lending that I read as anti-Semitic, but um, it's really not overt racism. Yeah. Don't think we can take that. Um, Drugs. Surprisingly not. Like there wasn't even much booze really, was there? No, just just one or two uh, blowouts. Yeah, it's, it's booze, not drugs. Yes, they're a very clean living for people on the front, I have to say. Suspiciously so. And politics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that it's, it's a highly political piece of work. Yeah. And swearing. Well, okay, so you said there was bitched, was there, once. Yeah. Does that count? It's a half tick. Are you allowed half ticks in censorship bingo? And we give it a half. Go on. Why not? Uh, infidelity. Oh, yes, definitely. Absolutely. All over the place. Rupert is uh, married to somebody who's conveniently insane. Yep. Who even more conveniently dies. I mean, yes, Mr. Rochester all over again. And the next one is crime. I mean, there is, there's certainly the suggestion that people are misbehaving quite a lot. Yep. I had ticked it, but you're right, it's sort of maybe a slightly moot point. Yeah, it's not as much as... I think there was, like, pilfering and theft are sort of vaguely mentioned. Um, There isn't even much malingering or, you know, trying to get out of the the fighting. That didn't appear much, did it? No, I mean, even even the brother, Lionel, who is shirking, uh, sort of ends up conscripted and participating, even though his participation isn't enough. Yeah, I mean, that subplot with the brother is just hilarious, really. The next one, genitalia. Definitely not. It's all dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And abortion. No, I didn't think they even discussed it. No. Orgies. Oh, my God. No way. Absolutely not. Sexual assault. Yeah, I think that there is considerable dancing around the dangers that the women are facing as they're walking around in this military landscape. Yeah, 100%. Um, Extramarital pregnancy, certainly. Tick, 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 yay. 
it's, it's not doing too badly. Masturbation, no. Absolutely not. And no sex toys either. No. I mean, I go so far as to say there's no bloody feminism in it either. I agree. I wonder how it would have been read by its contemporary audience. I wonder just if the female protagonist who is doing things and being out there and kind of participating would be enough to have been read in that way. I agree. I don't see it as that particularly because for other reasons within the novel, but maybe from its first audiences. Yeah, that's true. And there is also that kind of equality agenda in that the wax are drawn from across society. So although Connie is like the county set, she's almost gentry. She works with women who are receptionists or chorus girls and, you know, ordinary ordinary jobs in a city. And she really reacts against the gentry. She's really kind of class conscious and the loyalties in the novel are really with the lower class characters for the most part, with the notable exception of Rupert. I wonder, could we tick it? I do know. I think you almost... I think you could. I mean, it isn't particularly um, positive, but I think you could. Yeah. Divorce. No, even though Rupert could get divorced, he won't. They don't even talk about it. He won't. And as we said, conveniently ends up not needing to. Yeah, well, the madwoman in the attic does have to die. Yeah. <laughs> That's the plot. Contraception. No, not a thing. No, constant danger of getting pregnant, which very much suggests that it is not a thing that is on the radar. And then, they I mean, they are quite frank in discussing, you know, that people are sleeping with each other, but there doesn't seem to be any discussion that, you know, there might be ways to avoid any of the consequences. And like, this is, you know, 1914 to 18. There are devices available at this point. For sure. Uh, menstruation, no. Blasphemy? I think there is. Where? Tell me. I just made a big tick by it on my bingo sheet. So I think they overtly comment on blasphemy at at least one point. And I suppose the other part is, the other part might be in the actual kind of commentary on Christianity, which is sort of quite questioning as well. But I, I, I think they do comment on the blasphemy of the soldiers at one point. Oh, yes. They're irreligious. Yes. And her father, although he is an ordained person, is... Goodness doesn't seem to come from his job, but rather in spite of being ordained. Yeah, I think we could take that. Oral sex? No. All ellipses. Graphic violence? Yes, there is. I mean, there's the consequences of. Yeah. And I think that's sort of one thing that I was quite interested in, yeah, that it doesn't, the novel doesn't, for all that it says it wants to not be one of these novels about the horrors of war, that's really sort of almost morally because it really does show us, it shows us those things. We get some very vivid injuries. We get some really kind of graphic breakdowns, including her own. But it still wants to have that kind of moral centre, which is, I think, what it's leaning on in terms of differentiating itself from some of those other novels. Although I think that's a kind of specious argument for me. So it it does have those gritty aspects. Yeah. So it's not the grittiness the author objects to. It's the disillusionment. Right, so we can take that one. And finally, queer content. I didn't think there was 
anything or did I miss it? I think you missed it. I think there was the bit. Oh, did I miss the, it? One of the nurses, uh, one of the other nurses tried to importune her. Oh, yes, she did. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. There was certainly a suggestion of shenanigans going on within WAC. Quite early in the novel. Yeah. Right. So how much have we got? Eleven and a half, because we're going to give it the half. Yeah. The half for the swearing. More than you thought, I think. A lot more than I thought. I suppose because the ellipsis and the, you know, that silence is so strong that that's the sort of memory as you're reading it is the not revealing. But yeah, when you include all of that, that's quite good, actually. That's that's quite respectable. (laughs) That must mean that people, when they were reading it, did have issues around the lewdness and filth in the context of publications of the time. Absolutely. So I suppose now that we've rated it and uh, slated it, I have to say I didn't enjoy reading it. I found it quite frustrating and I wouldn't have kept reading it if I hadn't set myself the task. I mean, I found it bracing at the beginning, but I got a bit fed up with it because it was so judgmental and jaded and just awful. I mean, what did you think? How did you react to it? Yeah, I agree totally. You know, it is, I mean, I think we've been quite clear in the tone of what we've been saying about it throughout the podcast. It is moralistic. It is judgmental. You wondered if it was a pastiche of disillusionment. I'd probably think about it slightly differently. It's a generic novel at a moment when this kind of war book is becoming generic. So to me, it's interesting as a scholar, somebody who's read an awful lot of these war books, because it's a kind of greatest hits of war book tropes. And I find the little glimmers of sort of meta commentary on the current moment really interesting for how it's situating itself among those debates in the course of telling the story. But it probably is one that it's interesting if you're interested in the First World War, in narratives about it, this historical moment in the interwar. I wouldn't probably recommend it as a great, great read, I'm not sure any of the imprints which reprint classic fiction will be queuing up to do this one. But if you're interested in the period, I think there's something in it for you that you might appreciate and get something out of. I suppose that contemporary readers who were reading so many war books at that time would have found it pleasurable for those reasons too, that they were like, yes, this is familiar, but also maybe commenting and that relationship between the the kind of the industry and this particular text that you would be reading. That must have been quite interesting for contemporary readers. Yeah, and I think that's what happens when you become a scholar of these things. In essence, if you're working with a lot on a particular historical moment, you kind of become a contemporary reader again. It becomes easy to fit these kinds of novels in the sorts of things you've read already. Yes, immersion reading, I think. For sure. Thank you so much, Andy. That was great. I really enjoyed uh, discussing Rupert and Connie and their shenanigans in France. Thanks, Tommy Misha. So that was a fake memoir, probably, that revealed a lot about the history of publishing and publishing about the First World War. I don't know how I feel about it being fake. It raises so many questions about autobiography as a genre. I am sticking with women's voices for the next episode, but shifting to the US, so it will be radically different, I hope. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Mm-hmm.